0: You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org.
1: So, uh, welcome to another episode of the Center for Auto Safety podcast. And this week we've got special guests, Mike Wagner, CEO of Edge Case Research and Ben Lewis, VP of Edge Case Research. And so briefly, my understanding of what you guys are doing is working to ensure automated AV vehicles. I can never get any of these acronyms correct, yeah. but but <laughs> so self-driving cars, you guys are putting insurance on this.
2: Yeah, thanks guys for uh, having us on the show. Really appreciate the opportunity. Um, Yeah, so uh, Edgecase is a startup company uh, uh, headquartered in Pittsburgh. We got folks throughout the globe, we got an office in Munich. and folks like Ben throughout the country. We started the company to uh, try to make autonomous vehicle technology safer. Um, I come out of Carnegie Mellon University. I had helped uh, create some early versions of this technology and got really interested in how we could make it safe um, and spent some time researching some different um, technologies that that we thought were pretty important for, for doing that. Um, but then we kind of realized that the the you know the the technical challenge was interesting, but not the whole puzzle. There's a lot of business challenges, legal challenges uh you know cultural challenges, so we set out on a journey to to try to help autonomous vehicle developers uh, you know build systems that are safer. Um, and so we took a couple of steps to do that. The first one is, uh, we, uh, we helped publish the UL 4,600 standard, which was the world's first standard for the assessment of the safety of level four vehicles. So that was about, um, two and a half years ago now that that standard came out. We then started, uh, building technology to help customers conform with that standard. So to live up to the, to the standard and to be able to achieve all the different things that that's, that standard's asking for, because it's, it's 300 pages of uh, pretty in-depth requirements. Um, and it, that is hard, right? That is, that is a long journey that a lot of our customers are taking. So, um, in 2019, uh, we raised a, a round of uh, venture investment and one of our uh, investors was Liberty Mutual Strategic Ventures. And so we started learning more and more about, um, uh, what insurance might do with some of the, um, safety assessment technology we were building. And we realized that we could um, really help advance our mission if we aligned insurers with True safety principles from UL 4600, uh, and we kind of realized that this was a great way to maybe incentivize the industry to make the investments in safety engineering uh, that we want to see them make. And so, yeah, now uh, we're getting into the insurance business. As a as a robotics guy from CMU, I'm I'm kind of surprised to say that I'm uh, you know becoming an insurance salesman, but uh, that is that is what's going on. And I think it's really important as we as we talk to the market, um, you know, everybody, both from the Operator side, the developer side, the insurer side says that this is a huge need. Um, so we're just really glad to be bringing UL 4600 principles to the to the challenge.
1: So uh, level four cars, this is the the Waymos and the GM Cruises
2: that we've talked about. That's right, Ben. Do you want to cover uh, who some of our you know what what some of our customers look like and what the space looks like?
0: Wait, let me interrupt. Uh, This is uh, for some of our listeners. You might want to tell them what UL 4600 is. Uh, Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, right. So um, UL
2: 4600, like I said, is the world's first safety standard uh, that defines how to assess the safety of a level four vehicle. So a fully autonomous uh, vehicle. Um, uh, You can go uh, online and look at a, a, a digital version yourself. Um, it's 300 pages of requirements for if you're if you're going through and looking at um, a particular autonomy technology, what do you need to look for? Uh, and it's all based on what's called a safety case, which is a structured argument backed by evidence that argues that a uh, an autonomous system is safe for an intended use. So it covers a variety of topics from how you're looking at different risks and hazards uh to how you're uh testing the machine learning itself uh, how you're defining the operational design domain it's 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 really quite a i think an important uh milestone in the autonomy industry to have that published and it and it's being maintained actively today um and it's not just edge case uh there are folks from the automotive industry the insurance industry public sector uh, all involved in the in the generation of the standard
0: and is this the same ul that puts the little stickers on my uh
2: air conditioner the one and only underwriters laboratories, which interestingly enough, you know, in the name, uh, uh, you know, they were they were created to try to ha- come up with standards to uh, assess the safety of all different kinds of things. So while autonomy is different in some interesting ways, um, it's the same. It's the same general idea. And yep, that UL. All
0: right. Thanks.
3: And also yeah. I, I had a, uh, the safety case idea, something I think is really important for listeners to understand here is not. Like a, it's not really a something you might think of. In our experience in the past, a lot of safety cases are made, you know, on paper. They're documents submitted to NHTSA or some other regulator. In this case, it is an active and ongoing case that that it has to be to account for new and unforeseen risks or problems that might arise in the operating environment.
2: Yeah, I you
3: said it perfectly.
2: Um, safety cases are used in a number of safety critical industries today. Uh, aviation, uh, nuclear, rail, whatnot, um, and uh, you know members of our team have experience applying them in those in those uh, sectors. Uh, but like you say, typically they're um, they're a work product that is generated when everything is done. Um, and uh, I think with a novel technology, there's so many uncertainties. I mean, we're we're called edge case research for a reason, right? Uh, there's so many uncertainties that your 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 safety argument needs to needs to explain how you're going to be monitoring for those surprises uh, when you start to deploy and how you're gonna deploy responsibly, right? So keeping track of everything, fixing problems that you find in a, in a proactive way um, and, and scaling up that way. So yeah, when we talk about a safety case, it's not just a document. I mean, it is a document for sure. There are process you know, um, uh, deliverables that 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 need to be presented as evidence, but you also need the data. You also need the safety performance indicators.
1: So how, how does this work? How do I get insurance for an AV? Like as a as an individual, I I had to take a written exam, I had to take a practical exam, and then as a 16-year-old, they're like this is how much it's going to cost. And then magically when I turn 25, they're like we'll make it less. Who who gets the insurance for an AV? Is it a, the the car? Is it is it Waymo? Is it me if I buy an AV? How does that yeah. work?
2: I will let Ben demystify the whole process for you. Excellent.
1: <laughs>
4: yeah, sure. Um, you know, we we talked earlier about the level four autonomy that we're going after, and um, you know, for us, the the primary focus is on a a uh, you know insurance in a B two B model. So we're you know we're looking to offer insurance to the the entities that uh, you know develop and deploy these level four vehicles out onto the road. Um, you know, which is really predominantly how we see level four autonomy getting out into the world. And so, you know, for the insurance, you're talking about creating commercial lines, insurance products that, uh, you know, companies like a a Waymo, like you mentioned earlier, on the developer side would purchase, or uh, the fleets that are going to be adopting these vehicles would purchase. Typically, you know, the the key uh, insurance coverage there is auto insurance, the same uh, sort of the same flavor of what we all buy as individuals. Um, and, and so for us, the, you know, we're really looking to take that safety case framework as our, our risk assessment framework. And so instead of saying, you know, uh, I don't know, the the, the I guess the, the co-CEOs of Waymo will uh, uh, take a written exam and and we'll put them out on the road or we'll put the Waymo driver out on the road for some practical, practical exam. And, and then when the Waymo driver turns 25, I guess we'll give it up. Uh, a little bit of a, a, a benefit for its driving experience. Now we want to, um, you know, look at a company's, uh, you know, performance and sort of their their risk level in relation to a safety case and the associated requirements, and say, you know, how do they stack up in sort of these key areas that we look at across the safety case, and therefore, you know, we can not only say something about the level four you know, autonomous driver in the technology, but we can also say things about the company and their organization and their safety culture. We can say things about uh, the company's uh, operational performance. You know, not only are they good at um, producing technology, but they're also good at putting it out on the road and and actually operationalizing it in a safe way. And so, so we're looking to take those elements and, you know, essentially replace the traditional, Uh, Methods that we use to look at human drivers, Um, and then in some in some cases we'll keep some things that insurance uses today. um, You know, looking at sort of the company's uh, financial health, or you know maybe the organizational structure they use, which might relate to the safety culture, but you know might also tell us a few things about how they manage their risks overall. So we're we're essentially taking you know some of the existing methods. Uh, and, and retaining them and then in some cases particularly where we're talking about the risk the, the core risk of driving a vehicle we're stripping out you know the things that are really just particular to humans and and replacing those with elements that are really particular to you know to software drivers and, and to technology
1: this is our favorite part of the show where Michael forgets to unmute himself <laughs> every time. Humble.
3: Every time I did. I think I made it through one episode last week. That was my first Um one of the things, you know, I'm kind of fascinated by here is, you know, right now, the way the vehicle industry works is manufacturers basically self certify that their vehicle is going to be safe, matching up with kind of the minimum standards set by the um government and the federal motor, federal motor vehicle safety standards um and when it comes to you know new technologies like um uh, automated driving systems and even you know things like automatic emergency braking and ADAS systems crash avoidance systems those minimum standards don't really exist yet at a federal level and So there's really no minimum performance standards. We see, you know, automatic emergency braking, working in some circumstances, not in others, working good for pedestrians for some manufacturers, not so great for others, depending on the condition. And, um, you know, it it, it seems like that in the absence of federal regulation, when manufacturers are having to go out and get insurance, but also to get that insurance, they're having to basically jump through some hoops by, you know, by means of a safety case software setup. It, it's, you know, it creates kind of a synergy there because the underwriters want that safety case software to be as good as possible and as thorough as possible to ensure that they're not losing money in the deal. So it's kind of a safety synergy, I think, is the, the word I'd use for it that's created there that might help fill some of the gaps we see in regulation at the federal level and state level. Yeah, I I, I think you put it really well. That's
2: um that's been one of the things that we've been, I guess, challenged with over the, you know, Almost decade that that I've been running Edge Case is you know we we have a we have a whole other uh, business unit um, uh, that w- that we're probably not going to spend too much time on today. That's in the world of defense, and and in the defense world, every new system that gets generated needs a safety assessment done. You know, according to uh, according to government regulation, and so there we have a very clear uh, entry point where we can you know provide the assessment, and it's you know it's not just a hoop to jump through, but it's really feedback to try to improve the system and make it better for everyone. It's always been really challenging in the in the commercial space and that's 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 one of the reasons why i'm excited about um you know what ben's team is doing at edge case as well um but you know to be clear uh, i think all these regulations need to be figured out as well um and we've been quite open with um with those stakeholders at state and federal levels, as well as international, um, about how we are planning on doing our assessments. Um, you know, we, we've been talking about a safety case. Um, the details of a safety case, you know, are, are, are going to have some, um, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's going to be some tailoring to a, a particular customer's technology, but the top level like approach that we're using, um, we call it the, uh, Loop Safety Case Framework, um, named after our, our platform. Um, that, that framework, uh, we're sharing with everybody who's interested in learning about it, um, both, you know, um, uh, commercial customers, uh, any kind of stakeholder, um, but also, uh, you know, folks at state and, and federal levels so that we can, you know, raise the, the, the the level of safety. You know, I I don't know where those regulations are going to end up. I don't know when they're going to end up. But uh, if we can learn some lessons and, and provide that as feedback, I think that's important.
4: One one key thing I'd add to is, um, you know, to some degree for the regulatory side of things here and then also for the standards themselves. The, the way I've seen it, I, you know, I, so I come from the insurance industry. That's, that's my background. And the way I've seen it in the past is that you know, those get looked at as, as sort of checkbox exercises. Um, you know, we would, in, in, in my my prior life, when when we would look at autonomous um, vehicle developers uh, at one of the big insurance companies in the U.S., like, you know, you would have a list of these standards, ISO 26262 maybe, and some of the other ones. Um, this was before 4600 was published. And, you know, you, you'd be looking for those things, but it would pretty much be a conversation like, okay, you know, we're aware of the relevance of these standards or in some cases where, where they existed, uh, we're, we're aware of these, the relevance of these regulatory frameworks. But, uh, you know, the conversation would really just be like, okay, um, you know, do you adhere to ISO 26262? We do. Okay. Check. Great. That's awesome. And yeah, you know, there, there really wasn't a lot of depth there. And then there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of auditing and, and, and verification around that. And, you know, what we're trying to do is really flip that on its head, not, you know, not just ask whether companies have a safety case or maybe even get one level down and say, what does it consist of as far as sort of the key pillars, but uh, actually, you know, do that kind of analysis, hold it up against the uh, the 4600 framework and the end loop safety case framework and, you know, do that assessment. And then not only that, but we, you know, we, have named our safety case framework after Endloop, our platform for a reason. We would like to use our platform and our engineering expertise to check in on on that company's performance against that framework over time. So not just get like a snapshot of their level of risk or safety at one point in time, but really look at them and and, then be close to the customer along the way so that we can recognize uh, changes in risk and safety over time. And where appropriate, we can reward that if companies are... Uh, you know, experiencing improvements in risk, or or you know, their safety profile uh, gets better. You know, we we actually want to be able to uh, recognize that, and as Mike said, you know, uh, create a uh, an incentive framework around that that we can put to use. Um, so I think this is a really big difference for us. Like we're going from this yeah. world where I'm just used to you know, sort of very short snapshots, taking a look and, and sort of at a particular point in time at a company's profile. Uh, at a fairly superficial level. Uh, and now we're really looking to get a lot more depth and sort of dynamicism to, uh, you know, how we're looking at the risk of these companies.
3: That's interesting. I suppose you could also raise raise the rates on someone, I guess, to put it in the commercial normal auto insurance type thing. I could be, you know, if, if my risk was exceptionally high that day, or, or you noticed that I had a tire pressure monitor alert my costs might go up that day. Or, or I don't, I'm not sure how insurance works in that way, but it at least, I, I think, sounds like it would allow you some type of live monitoring to even detect risks in some way, maybe before the manufacturer was able to. Yeah, there, there,
2: there's going to be a lot of innovation here um, because we're going from uh, you know a world where even just tracking... The number of miles you've you've driven is is, is sort of a, a an insurance uh, uh innovation to a world where we have all of these safety performance indicators being actively tracked uh so you know we're a startup we're taking one step at a time right. Right. um but uh but 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 you could imagine a future where you know the risk of a particular uh operational design domain or a particular route gets taken into account um all those things are i think are really interesting and interesting to us as long as they're aligned with, you know, real safety standards and and real safety outcomes.
0: Well, we have have long advocated for a third-party review of self-driving vehicles before they're allowed to be on the roads. We've also advocated for a progressive licensing uh, process in which you have increasingly critical examination of the vehicle as you expand the operating environment that is allowed for that vehicle. Uh, we've looked at ul4600 as a great way to form a contextual basis for this third-party review and uh, if the insurance companies uh, can implement that that's great but we you know we we think that this technology is akin to airplanes because you're pushing out something that is that is using technology to keep people alive that the people who are using it the customers are pretty much unconscious of exactly what's included in that and how to control it. So we we think that there needs to be a third party to assure that there's an adequate level of safety and and, uh, consciousness, all those things that you've talked about in the vehicle before it's allowed to go out on the road. We don't think there's ever any possibility that you can simply drive them far enough to make them safe enough. Uh,
2: yeah. I hear, I, hear on that. I, I would agree with you completely. Um, you know, and and uh, uh we think that as an insurer, we're kind of in an interesting spot where, you know, putting our money where our mouth is, saying, Hey, these what these are what we think best practices are and 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 we're gonna you know take a piece of this risk in exchange for you following that we think that's an important incentive but 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 I agree with you that it's it's a piece of the puzzle not the whole thing um I think uh you know we are getting to the point where um Uh, independent uh, assessors are going to be able to take a look at the technology in a consistent way. You know, just to be blunt about it, because I I think we're all uh, fellow travelers and trying to get to the right, uh, uh, you know, safety uh, goals here. Um, A lot of people look at 4600 and say, how the heck do you even assess that? I mean, it seems like, you know, safety cases are going to be different here, there, everywhere everywhere. Well, this is where I think it's important to bring in some of the roboticists, uh, because I I know there are only so many robotics professors across the world. Um, I know many of them. I don't know, maybe a quarter of them, something like that. And they only teach so many ways to solve this this problem. And so if we can take it a level down and actually instantiate, again, a safety case framework that starts to lay some of, the, some of these things out, I think we're going to see in the next year or so um, the ability of some traditional um certification uh organizations you know with these kind of you know completely independent uh uh, certification uh credentials to to be able to come in and 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 make some progress about uh about where you're headed there so I'm excited about that too that I have to be a little bit circumspect but I think we have a specific plan that that edge case is working on to enable that um and uh I think you know even independent of our insurance play here I
3: think uh, that's going to be a really great outcome right And another another thing about, you know, having those safety performance indicators and having the safety cases built is that I think it might allow ultimately for better public transparency about the performance of these systems and might help you know uh, when when vehicles arrive that can take you to California while you sleep you know might help consumers who are lack the confidence in those systems and some of the hesitancy we see from the public about AVs at the moment and they
2: i mean they should be hesitant right until yeah. it's proven out they they absolutely should be and there are, there are important differences uh, just to add on to what fred was saying between the history of aviation and and the history here you know these it, mostly if you're getting on a plane you're the one taking the risk now obviously the plane could crash into a school or something but um you know here by by definition these cars are driving you know they're, i i had kids in uh, uh at a at a summer day camp uh in pittsburgh and a couple of years ago um a company uh who was testing in pittsburgh sent a test vehicle up like you know into the line where these kids were were being picked up I, I know firsthand that it's not just the guys getting in those cars that are taking the risk, it's it's the rest of us. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more.
1: So, how do you imagine working with companies, you know, doing regular software releases, whereas, you know, that first version comes out, you've tested it, you've know, followed it, and then they're like, hey, got to do a hot fix. I mean, Tesla does this regularly where they're constantly putting out, you know, OTAs. Are you, are you imagining that you're getting a feed of this and reviewing? You're working, you know, hand in glove. What's the... What's the realistic scenario versus the dream scenario? I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the dream scenario again. I'm a I'm a technology guy. I I love autonomy. I would love to have a standards based process. A process be accelerated so that you can push a hot fix in a day and and have a hot fix that's actually standard certified and 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 evaluated appropriately. We're not there today, um, at all. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, having Expecting today to have the same speed of updates that you have from, you know, non-safety critical software platforms is, is not realistic. Uh, however, um, there's huge value in having hot fixes, right? I mean, you know, I think the not only the quality, but, as, but the safety of this technology is going to be improved by setting up a control loop, right? Where we say we're learning um you know we're, we're monitoring these these safety safety, <laughs> safety performance indicators or spis um we're we're monitoring them out in the world we have a team with a, a a robust safety management system that's looking at any violations and and looking for things that are unusual analyzing that risk and coming up with a mitigation plan re, you know verifying that that mitigation and and fielding it now that's a whole long process um but I think it's, it's critical to get that a little bit, uh, faster and, and more efficient because that is the way that you can say, Hey, we realized there was this problem with our pedestrian detector. We spotted it, you know, on Wednesday, uh, and we analyzed the problem by Friday. We have a solution. We're verifying it, you know, and so we can get it out in a reasonable amount of time.
0: Um, sure. But doesn't that run counter to the whole idea of software validation? I mean, if you've, if, if you get something out really quickly, it's impossible to have completely validated that software fix. So doesn't it introduce as much risk as it solves? It can. Um, that's why you need a robust multi-step validation
2: process. So one of the things that I think is is interesting is is for the industry to come up with a way to really use simulation um productively um and to have metrics that you're tracking to 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 help you trust some of the simulation. And then having a process where when you push the hot fix, you're pushing it in a very, very limited sort of way so that you can uh, you can validate it in, uh, you know, in vehicles with safety drivers and and, and in that kind of um, responsible way. You don't want to take any software and just push it out to the whole fleet uh, without uh, an incremental process. So that's 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 one of the issues that kind of needs to be that's a, that's a circle that, that that needs to be squared um, to be able to do this. So more a tepid fix than
1: a
0: hot fix.
2: Yeah,
1: right. But but you're seeing that more as something internal to the companies developing the software as opposed to a third party, for example, you guys doing that review?
2: I think everybody needs to um, be on the same page about how it works. That's that's thing number one. What is what does the process need? What does the process need to look like? once you have that in place, then you can do a couple different things, and um, and some of these things are things that EdgeCase is doing in the insurance world, right? One is check on the health of a of a process, and this is something that a lot of industries have, right? Quality management processes and whatnot. I mean, even in in safety critical industries, you can go in and make sure that you know uh, an ISO two six two six two process is being executed correctly, that you know by trained personnel. So you can look at the health of the process. That is super important. And to be clear, a lot of robotics people don't know anything about that because they're coming in purely from a technology. Hey, let's look at the stats kind of background. Um, and and you can't get rid of the process uh, uh, auditing side of things. So that's critical. But then also, once you've agreed on on the goals, then you can have these safety performance indicators and you can then report out, hey, you know, here's where we are with all those different thresholds. This is why those thresholds make sense because you've reviewed the safety case. And now you can have, I think, a, a pretty useful technical interchange as well, which is a big a big breakthrough. Five years ago, we we wouldn't have been able to have that conversation, but now we can.
1: And you see the OEMs wanting to go along with this instead of try to keep everything closed off and proprietary?
2: Well, that is challenging, right? Um, part of the way EdgeCase operates is to... Um, provide direct value back to the developers themselves. So if we come into this conversation saying, open your books, we'll, you know, we want to take a look around, you and I both know how that's going to work. And honestly, like, you know, that doesn't sound like a very useful conversation to have unless it's backed up again by regulatory requirement. Um, but, you know, given the reality of, of today, um that that doesn't always fly. But if what we say is, hey, if you give us access to some of these metrics, some of these SPIs, if you um, let an independent certifier come in and check this, the, the, the health of your safety management processes, um, then we can provide, provide you some feedback because we know you're still trying to solve these problems yourself, right? You, you, sometimes you don't, you haven't pulled your safety drivers yet. So couldn't you use a little bit of, of our advice? Cause we've been working with the whole industry and usually they they do value that, and so they we can get into a conversation with them that's that's productive uh, immediately with them, and and then that that makes it worth their while. Very cool. Are you guys providing insurance right now to anybody? Uh, we are not right now. We are currently rolling this out, but we are uh, working with pretty much uh, the entire um, market segment that we're starting with, which is the level four trucking world. Um, and so, yeah, we have, we have active engagements with basically everybody in that space. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we're, we're, we're super excited to bring those all to, uh, to our, our, uh, our insurance world.
1: And I imagine with trucking, there's always going to be a safety driver. Well, at least in the foreseeable future, there will always be a safety driver. And like, what do you, what are you doing? Do you have two types of insurance in that case? When it's an AV mode, there's one type of insurance. And when the guy takes over the wheel, it's a different type of insurance.
4: Yeah, I mean, from a, a coverage perspective, like, you know, the coverage you provide uh, via the insurance policy, it's pretty much the same coverage, uh, at least today. I mean, there's pos- certainly a possibility to uh, you do some innovation there, but, you know, auto insurance is so heavily regulated that um, you, you basically need to carry what you need to carry, regardless of weather. You know, it's a completely manual vehicle there's a safety driver behind the wheel or, or it's a driverless vehicle someday so so the, the the premise there is pretty consistent in terms of what gets covered um, under the policy the we do plan on having uh, products that recognize those different um, you know sort of scenarios and, and the risk level that might change between those scenarios so so that's something we want to do again uh, you know because there is a difference there in terms of the sort of the qualities and characteristics of the risk. And then, you know, also, I mean, we are we're proponents of autonomy generally. And, you know, again, if, if folks can develop safe autonomy, we'd like to, um, you know, be a, a sort of a, a, a backer, a supporter, a booster of that. So we're trying to build insurance that, you know, is sort of oriented towards getting fleets, you know, sort of further up the food chain when it comes to uh, uh, developing and deploying safe autonomous technology.
1: Very cool.
3: And um, I also noticed uh, when I was checking out your website that you do some work on ADAS or crash avoidance vehicles and safety cases for that. How does that differ from this? what seems to be an incredibly complex case for automated driving systems when you step back a little or drop down a couple of SA levels to level two type crash avoidance, ADAS, and yeah. driver assistance
2: there's a there's a bunch of different uh, a, a bunch of differences excuse me um but uh if we're looking at a um if if we're looking at a a, a function that is taking the wheel and that is responsible for avoiding risk um And I got to I got to give a pointer to to Phil Kutman's levels of of autonomy uh, uh, designation. I think that's the right way to think about it. Who's in charge of avoiding uh, the accident? Right. Um, And level three, there clearly are you know, functions, auto, you know, automated lane change and things like that, that if not built the right way are going to are going to um, pose substantial risk. Um Is it the same? No, because they're not constantly engaged and you can have all kinds of different caveats there. But fundamentally, at some point they get engaged, they're responsible for doing everything. And so a lot of the same technical approaches uh um, apply. One of the things that we are doing um with our with our safety case framework and again we're sharing this with everyone so happy to dive into you know details here is um is is defining how to accomplish very practically some of the steps in the iso safety of the intended function standard so the sodif standard twenty one four four eight. um you know that's a that that's a standard written um with adas in mind um and uh uh It's a good way to to think about um, hazard analysis for some semi-autonomous and autonomous algorithms. That's an important piece of our safety case framework. That's that's actually what you're supposed to be doing in early simulation and in some of the tepid fix uh, pre-release activities. And so we can use all those same things for an ADAS function. Um, Your risk acceptance criteria are going to be different because your exposure is different. Your concept of operations is different. But a lot of the pieces are still extremely valuable.
0: You mentioned ISO, which for our listeners is a international standards organization and something that's adhered to much more in Europe and other parts of the world than it is in the United States, but it's very important. One of the things that I've noticed is that Europe uh, has a well-developed ethical case for what should govern autonomous vehicle development. There's nothing like that in the United States. And I, I would think that this is a very important Aspect of the design process to make sure that you're not relying on engineers who are not trained in ethical considerations to implement safety rules and regulations into software without an ethical, you know, an ethical oversight, if you will, to make sure that those are consistent with values and experience that people need for safe transportation is, is something that you guys address as well.
2: Yeah um part of our safety case framework looks at the risk acceptance criteria so how you know when you're done right um uh, again how safe is safe enough right to give a shout out to Phil I think um uh you need to have that because otherwise you don't you don't really have uh, a definition of done. Yeah, there, there you go. Right. Yeah. Read, read that book and and, and talk and, and, and in particular, look at the parts about um, ethical risk uh, frameworks and risk goals, because I think uh, ideally that's something that society chooses um, and then and then pushes down to be implemented. Now, um, you know, that's always at a pretty high level. And there's going to be a bunch of technical considerations. But for instance, one of the things that that the Germans are documenting, right, is that, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, so I'm, I'm sorry that I'm I'm not quoting it exactly right. But basically, no no subset of the population will be put at you know undue risk, right? So this is like looking at bias in um, in any system, um, and this is a huge challenge because, gosh, you look back at some of the big academic conferences in deep learning. Uh, uh, and, and and machine learning systems. And I think over the pandemic, I think in 2020, one of the keynotes, the point of the keynote was to say, you guys aren't just about the math, you guys are actually doing software engineering and you need to think about the requirements and the implications of what you're building. I'm glad that somebody gave that keynote, but the fact that that was a keynote <laughs> tells you a lot. And so, um, you know, like in that case, we need a framework to identify bias and and to see whether we've mitigated it. Um, those things are incredibly, incredibly valuable, and I think, I think that there's a lot of work that can be done to get started today. Um, but once you get to scale, you're going to see pedestrian detection algorithms, for example, that are better at detecting humans that walk on two legs versus humans that w- that work in a wheelchair. I mean, these things, these things are going to appear. And part of why looking at the data is so important is that that's how you're going to find these biases. So. Um, but you gotta, you got to start with these goals. You can't work your way out of those obligations.
0: Well, and you got to record the data as well. And that implies that you're going into the system in the car or wherever the data is being stored. And you have the ability to discriminate that data and interpret it. How does that work?
2: Yeah, it's, it's really challenging. There's a bunch of statistical approaches you can use to find the problem. Right. To identify. So so this is where the uh, safety performance indicators are so valuable. If you have and, and this is kind of the way we roll here. If, if if you have a bunch of simulation data or a bunch of early testing data and you've monitored these safety performance indicators very closely, then essentially you have a statistical model. Right. And And, and you look at that model and you say, you know, do I have. Do I have any subsets of this uh, of these scenarios where maybe I have a much higher risk than than on average? Because safety is not about the average risk; it's about looking at all these different specifics and and turning them into hazards and then and then mitigating them. Um, so you can use a bunch of uh, known statistical techniques to find that you have an issue, but usually diagnosing where that issue lies, like what causes it and how to mitigate it, that's where you need the safety engineers, the, the very traditional safety engineers. So um, finding the root cause is, is always going to be, at least for the time being, uh, a human involved activity. And then you know how you mitigate it, a lot of the uh, robotics people think that every mitigation needs to be in the machine learning system itself, but sometimes the best solution is a systems approach or to limit the operating environment.
0: Well, the other thing I've I've been thinking about is that I don't believe any driver or automated control system, um, even human driver, will ever have complete information about the state of the vehicle, its environment or its trajectory. So somehow there's a stream of consciousness coming into either the human or the machine that says here here are the inputs that are coming in, here's all the sensory information. Now a human relies upon experience, judgment, and ethics in sorting through this data and figuring out what's the important thing to recognize in this particular circumstance. Uh, humans have the ability of pulling in a lot of data that simply is not available to autonomous vehicles. So, I, And I want to think about, and I notice this when I go out driving, is something like eye contact. When you've got several people coming together at a stop sign or several people coming together at a rotary Eye contact becomes incredibly important for your decision as to whether or not you're going to proceed, right? And, and I don't see how machines will ever be able to detect, much less interpret this kind of really personal fundamental biological information that we've all grown up with and, and just is organically part of who we are as human beings that are essential to the safe control of a moving vehicle with as much energy as uh, as we've discussed before is a hand grenade, right? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it, uh, that's a really difficult problem, and I don't see a solution to that anytime time in the next thousand years or so. <laughs> well, yeah. I
2: mean, uh, so, again, coming at this from the perspective of an autonomy person, I've seen a bunch of progress uh, in my career over the past 25 years that at this point, you know, the fact that we can do uh, pretty accurate pedestrian detection at all is is pretty shocking if you go back and look at uh, 1998 mike who by the way had a lot more hair right and a lot um you know he, he yeah exactly he never would have been able to expect this kind of level of uh, um uh, accuracy of detection i mean honestly speed i remember when the grand challenge happened back in the early 2000s i was working on a vehicle that was driving a little less than a meter per second uh and then the task was to drive across the desert at like 35 miles an hour yeah. So, um, so I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit facetious there because I also completely agree with you. There are some very, very hard things that I don't have a solution for, but I think if we, if we, if we do two things, number one, if we set up what the safety, uh, safety performance indicators look like and what the expectations are there, then we'll know whether someone succeeded or not. Because I think it would be great if someone could. Um, but secondly, in the meantime, because I agree with you, it's going to take. Well, maybe I'm maybe I disagree on orders of magnitude, but it'll it'll take a long time to get some of those things. Um, but we can also come up with deployment configurations that um, reduce the risk from getting those things wrong. And so I don't like to talk about you know any of our particular customers, um, but some of our customers are um, working on. Uh, more limited uh, operational design domain. So where you have maybe a truck convoy and you have the automated truck is following the human driven truck. And I'm not saying that that's better or worse than anyone else, just to be clear, but that's a good example because then a lot of the uncertainties can get handled a different way. That's not just technical. Um, there's still a huge amount of risk there that needs to be mitigated. But I think that there are some interesting uh, interesting solutions to get started and then and then iterate.
0: Well, we we do a section called the Tower of Fred, and I, I'm not sure if there's any real good entry point for that. But what about right now, Anthony? Introduce yourself. There you go. You've now go. entered right, the Tao uh, of Fred. I'm going to keep it really short this time, so I just want to posit uh, a few observations to you guys. I think that there are a lot of safety issues that are absolutely unique to AVs, and when you get up to a highly automated level, that are simply not apparent or Nothing you can ever drive through, nothing you can ever uh really appreciate unless you look at the at the full context of the automatic driving. so i got a list of them here. I'll just read through them uh fairly quickly. The establishment and implementation of the ethical framework for algorithm development we've talked about that. I don't think that's really necessary in level two or below because you've got a human being that's at the controls that can compensate for whatever shortcomings there might be. But at, at higher levels, that's absolutely essential to do that. Um, an establishment and the an implementation of safe harbor conditions at all points within the ODD. I don't even know what that means. And, and some people have talked about some people have talked about minimal risk conditions, and we're changing that to mitigated risk conditions and all that. But but somehow there's got to be. A safe harbor at every point in the in the ODD so that if something unanticipated happens, you're not going to sacrifice the people involved in it. Um, does, well, that, I got to jump in there. How does that work? Because I,
1: I think about that a lot since we've talked about this and I'm driving on, you know, two lane highways where there's no median, there's no shoulder, there's nothing like what? What do you imagine happened in that case? It's Not going to be like the Tesla crossing the Bay Bridge where it just hits its brakes. Like how how is something like that work? in a ser- scenario where there's no obvious exit.
2: Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend to say that there's one answer to that. Um, again, it does depend on what kind of mission, what kind of operations you're, you're, you're trying to accomplish there, whether you're, you know, taking some sort of uh, uh, signaling approach and say, hey, everybody, uh, you know, allow me to pull over, whether you go from some sort of more advanced convoy to something that's much more just like a software driven linkage between two vehicles. um, It does kind of depend. I agree that it's a huge challenge. Um, I also think not to not to play too much startup CEO and get back to the messaging I like, but 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 to do that, you know, running an insurance company, we're going to be able to look at like a bunch of these different statistics, and I think some of the answers to what a good uh, safe harbor or or minimal mitigated risk condition is come down to like how things work in the real world. Like engineers can predict these different things, but right. we're going to be able to take a look at them, and 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 we hope to feed that back.
0: Okay, and, and I don't want to handle. say that. Go
2: ahead, sorry. My, my somewhat
4: flippant add-on is uh, maybe like, I, I kind of think of this these, these scenarios as like two heads are better than one, and particularly if those two heads are, uh, you know, CMU-educated uh, computer engineers uh, at one of the, these AV developers. I, you know, the way I think about it is, you know what would we have to deal with if we look at a whole cohort of human drivers navigating that scenario? We'd have some people that navigate that quite well, and we'd have some people that navigate that pretty poorly. And so, you know, that's, that's, I guess, kind of where we're coming from ensuring human drivers. And unfortunately you're going to get all of that in your, the mix of your, your sort of book of business. Um, and you know, with the AV codes, we can you know, work to understand how an organization approaches that problem. And, you know, we're, I, I, I do have generally some pretty good confidence in these organizations full of smart people that are putting a lot of thought on how you can do that well. Um, as opposed to me kind of looking at everybody out on the road and getting everything from the worst to the best Um, and then, you know, kind of having to to, uh, uh, absorb whatever comes out of that.
0: Oh, that's good news. Um, One of the other issues I've, I've thought a lot about is command authentication. So say you've got three teenagers in the car, and the only thing you need to do to control the car is to point to the map, right? Because I know there are cars to do that. So you've got somebody who wants to get to school because they've got an exam, and you've got somebody else who wants to go surfing because they'd rather like to skip the exam. Um, you know, if you have voice-activated controls, how do you know who the uh, who the right person controlling the car is? How do you you know how do you make sure that the person controlling the car is in fact the person who should be controlling the car? These, these are issues that I think are very important and not well addressed. I agree with their
2: importance and the fact that they haven't been publicly addressed much. I think I think um, it's interesting, as I've taken my journey as a as, as, as someone interested specifically in the robotics and autonomy technology, to keep identifying situations that come down to product design and product like thinking. Rather than just like technical thinking, because yeah, I, I, I think of your question as a fascinating technical challenge. How can I, can I tell, you know, Michael's voice from Fred's voice? That's cool. Let's think about it. Um, that's an important piece of the puzzle, but also there are like just, you know, ways of building the device and kind of UX approaches that, that help with that. Or, you know, again, like, edge cases starting with trucking and, and, you know, they're the challenges I'm not going to say are gone. Um, but they're certainly different. So we need to think about the, the solutions in a context dependent way.
4: I look, I look forward to a solution to that because, um, I, I have the Amazon Alexa system and Whenever I tell it to raise the temperature, my girlfriend typically tells it to lower the temperature again. So if it could just prioritize my answer at all times, I, I appreciate that.
2: Or, or, or say somebody goes on the radio or uh, in a Spotify song or whatever is like, all vehicles stop now, right? And right. then, and then, and then, you know, like, that's an issue too. This is
0: not easy. All right, all right. a lot of stuff can happen. Um, rather than go through the whole list I've got, I'll try to hit a couple of high points. So uh, I talked earlier about my belief that it's you're unable to drive through a level two and come up to a safe solution for level three and one of the parts of that is that uh, a failure mode and effects criticality analysis that's a technical term that military people are familiar with but it it does basically what it says so how do you analyze all of the all of the failures that are possible to assure human safety and Anything that you're trying to promote from level two to level three or four, uh, you've got to do a FIMICA on those automatic functions uh, so that you can make sure they're going to be safe when the fact is you're pulling the human backup out of the system. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a problem that's recognized or is that something that is uh, already being addressed?
2: Yeah no that's uh that's that's a pretty important problem. Um I think that getting to your to your sort of underlying theme which is I think really interesting and important of driving through right getting from level 2 to level 4. It's um it's certainly very different um I don't know safety goals that you would have, different risk thresholds to have and you can't just say hey we're like <laughs> we're going from a system that's mostly or that's 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 doing great if it's uh um, preventing nine out of ten collisions to one that is ridiculously unsafe—if it is um, preventing nine out of ten collisions, right? Uh, that's 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 one way to think about going from level two to level four. Um, but there are some important technical approaches that um, that I think can be taken. <clears throat> so, if you if you have a level four system, it's going to have um, in its stack. Uh, for instance, a perception function, and you will have a perception function in your level two system as well, <clears throat> probably. Um, it might even be that the that the basic um, um, design of those things is similar. Maybe the level four system has a whole bunch more of them and many diverse um, versions of them. But I think there are some useful things you can do with what's called reprocessing, where you take a bunch of data that you've logged before and you feed it back into new versions of, uh, say, a sensing algorithm or a perception algorithm, and you and you calculate statistics on an ever-growing corpus of data. I think if done right, and, and to be clear, there's a bunch of ways of doing it wrong, uh, but if done right, that is a powerful technique to be able to build up um, True evidence uh, of, um, you know, some some level of of risk and and accuracy. But those things don't work so well. Reprocessing, I mean, doesn't work so well for control algorithms because there you can't just test them open loop. You have to, you know, have a closed loop simulation or some sort of test that actually closes the loop, and there, you know, minor changes uh, make all the earlier data invalid. So, I, if I can give free advice to the listeners on this podcast, I would say think about your system that way. Think about the 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 pieces <clears throat> that you can that you can continuously, you know, validate in an open loop kind of way. Build a validation campaign that that takes advantage of that. And for those that can't, don't fool yourself into thinking you can still do it. Um, come up with a legitimate campaign that, uh, or maybe not even a validation campaign. Think about like formal methods and, and mathematical methods to prove out your controllers and planners, because that might be a more efficient and also accepted way of getting to an appropriate level of safety.
0: Thanks. And, and for our listeners, level four, uh, just to remind you, is a vehicle that is able to operate under its own control for extended periods of time and does not require human intervention in the event of a fault or an unforeseen circumstance. Uh, that's that's the model that we're looking at, whereas level two is the car that you're driving today with some automatic uh, features that can help you drive but not intended to be automatically operated for an extended period of time. So the final point I've got is that um, there's got to be some way for automated vehicles to respond to police commands and exchanging information after a crash, which a certain amount of that is inevitable. But every police interaction with a vehicle uh, is novel. It's unplanned. Uh, it involves circumstances that the vehicle has never seen before. So I think it's very difficult to train a neural system to respond to these Necessarily spontaneous and unforeseen circumstances. Any observations on that?
2: We're just starting to see real data on that, um, and so I think the the well pun may be intended. The jury's out on on how well that's all going to work. Um, I think I think we do. Uh, you know, there's there's the, there's a lot of information that's that's meant to be provided to first responders about how to deal with the system. You know, if you uh, if you if you dig into that a bit, it tends to be like how to cut it apart and not shock yourself. I think, uh, you know, or what the switches do. I think um, if if uh, if industry organizations wanted to look at the 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 roadmap of, of next, uh, important things to work on. And I'm, you know, I'm looking at an AVSC or whatever, an SAE, um, you know, looking at de- defining those things to a high level of detail, I think would be great. You know, they, they've done a lot of work on, on how to do, um, um, testing with safety drivers. That's an awesome standard. Um, I think, uh, I think the same kind of thing would be a great next step.
1: And when my AV gets pulled over for bad driving from an insurance perspective, who's getting the ticket? Okay. <laughs> no, really, I want uh, to the, they, they they stop. As your future insurance experience. provider, I,
4: I won't be I won't be doling out any tickets. But um, but you know, I, I, I think today it's it the the trouble kind of the the trouble is it's it's pretty murky, right? Like again, the level of insight that makes its way back to and a stakeholder like an insurance company is is pretty limited, and so the granularity there around. You know what? Which driver was it, you know in in the hot seat at any particular time is 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 not um, you know kind of fully realized today, and that's why we're interested in breaking things down by mile. You know, looking at kind of each mile and each instance, uh, and and kind of who was the driver at that point in time, so that we can properly recognize where the risk is is kind of coming from, where it's uh sort of stemming from is it is it a human um, if there's a safety operator in the vehicle and, and they have a role in what's playing out or is it the automated driver um it's an interesting question on the on the ticket side i guess it gets back to the regulatory frameworks that are out there and the fact that there's still some development there that, that needs to happen
1: okay and so lastly my car's lease is up in april can i have an av then and will you guys insure it for me <laughs> is I've the entire time. not a tr- no. Uh, it's not an eighteen wheeler, unfortunately. No,
2: I don't know. Well, I I never like to turn away business. So so let's 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 talk after the show. Okay,
0: that? that sounds good. So, how can people best reach you, Ben and and Michael?
2: Well, you can uh, go to our website at www.ecr.ai. That's echocharlieromeo.ai. Uh, you can also email info uh, at that address. And uh, we have a LinkedIn page as well. Great. Oh, thanks. I'm sure people will be. I hope they are. <laughs> yeah it's been busy uh it's certainly a fascinating time you know 2023 2024 is when a lot of our customers are gonna um start to really go to market uh, at bigger and bigger scale so we're happy to be on this podcast talking about this and hopefully encouraging folks to think about it as well because um we're gonna need some answers here pretty soon so we really appreciate you guys uh, being interested in this
3: okay, hey, thanks and- for coming on Yeah, super interesting and fascinating subject for us to discuss, and um, we wish you the best, and thanks for joining us today.
0: Yeah, great to have you on. Uh, Really good insights. Appreciate it. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.